Welcome to today's episode of the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so we can learn to become who we were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith. If you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Essen Panarli. Essen is a holistic psychotherapist, wellness and lifestyle coach, and founder of Eternal Wellness Counseling. Essen, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I'm really glad you're here to share your knowledge and experience with the Blueprint audience. Can you share a little bit about your background, experience, and who you help, as well as what is your mission and vision with Eternal Wellness Counseling and your presence on social media? It's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me, Jason. I've been in the substance abuse treatment industry for about 14 years, and I've worked in inpatient primary substance abuse care. I've worked in the detox level of care, and I was a clinical director at an IOP. And what I found is that there was a lot of missing pieces in terms of treating people with substance abuse. What I found was that places were dual diagnosis, which means you treat mental health as well as addiction. But as we know, it is not just the addiction, we're self-medicating with a substance. And so I would find that all the places that I worked at were kind of like factories on some level where people weren't really getting the mental health help. And I felt like I wasn't being sort of used to my capacity. And so I started to sort of think about the missing niches and the missing areas and sort of like what was necessarily needed. And I'm a very holistic person myself and very into mental health. I've always believed in therapy. I've always believed in self-improvement. So I started to think of the missing pieces and how I could really better serve the community. And I've been really like honored and privileged to work with such a wide variety of people of diverse backgrounds. And so I felt that I was like multiculturally experienced. I felt that all different socioeconomic backgrounds because, you know, I realize addiction and mental health doesn't really discriminate. And so that's what came up with the idea. I was like, I need to do my own thing. Like I need to open up my own practice where I'm a little more holistic, where there's a lot more clinical mental health work being done. So I, and I felt that I could expand more where I was not only just treating substance abuse, but I was treating people with mental health issues because I was specializing in trauma and I was specializing in anxiety and depression and bipolar and just a variety of things that come with addiction. And so that's when I came up with the idea of eternal wellness, which is something I think everybody is seeking. And I basically opened up my own private practice in Boca Raton in Florida. And I also started working alongside Jessica Baum on Worth Avenue at Relationship Institute of Palm Beach and just started to serve a larger population and just started to feel revived and felt like, wow, now I can actually help people in the way in which I didn't feel like they were getting helped in these treatment centers. For those of you who don't know who Jessica Baum is, she wrote the book Anxiously Attached. So if you find yourself with an insecure attachment style, which so many of us do, that's a great place to start your self-healing journey and to dive into your anxious attachment as well as the other insecure attachment styles. Absolutely. I mean, her book is brilliant and everybody should read it. She's one of my mentors and dear friend. It's just a culmination. It, she walks alongside you in the journey. 
And I also identify with being anxiously attached. Both of us are really, really interested in attachment theory, attachment styles, and both trained in Imago, which really works on childhood and gives couples and individuals an opportunity to heal childhood wounds, childhood stories that basically lead to your attachment style. And as much as we'd like to think that that happened a long time ago, why is that showing up in my adult life? It does. For those of us that don't know, what is Imago? So Imago is is primarily a couples modality, but basically it can be used with friends. It can be used with anybody to help repair relationships, to create more intimacy. Uh, it teaches people how. I know you use tear and wear. Is that what you use? Tear and repair, like a tear muscle. And, like tear and repair, like a muscle. So yeah. in Imago, we talk about what's called rupture and repair. And so what that means is, is that if there is an argument or a couple is really struggling to get along because what's really happening is they're hitting each other's stuff and they are reacting in that moment to the partner as if they were experiencing whatever trauma or pain or insecurity that they experienced maybe at six years old. And most of the time it's like this, not all, but most of the time it roots back to something that existed inside of them way before they got in that relationship. And the relationship is just a mirror that's highlighting. And so Imago stands for, in Latin, the image of unconscious love, which means basically, what is your image of what you think love should look like? And so we often, in Imago, come from a very relational attachment style framework where it's a dialogical process that helps people to restore intimacy, create more connection in the space in between. And it's this premise that you get wounded in relationship and that you can heal in relationship. Well, they always say we do our best healing in relationship with another. And it's because we do bump up against each other's stuff. And a lot of times what we're experiencing when somebody bumps up to our stuff and we react in a certain way, like you said, you're responding from the emotional age from which these things occurred. So you can feel safe and secure in all your different relationships. But in this particular relationship that's bumping up against your stuff, it brings out this other version of you that's still very much inside of you that we tend to ignore or push down or push away because it's too much for us to actually go there with ourselves and to allow ourselves to experience those emotions. You're absolutely right. And I have a lot of people that come to me and they come and they're like, I'm an anxious attachment style. I watched a video on TikTok and I, and I identified myself and I took, you know, and, and I'm grateful for TikTok and all these coaches that have come on. There's just such a larger mental health platform. And I think there's a place for everybody. I, I think it's important for people to get educated about it. Here's an interesting thing with attachment styles and what I see is we try to use attachment styles as a means of understanding the other person. So if somebody has an anxious attachment style, they're looking at the avoidant. Well, what are they thinking? What are they doing? What can I do to try and manage this situation? And what the, the anxious attacher has to realize in that moment is that you learn about attachment styles to help you understand yourself and to navigate your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. It's not necessarily to try and fix, change, or manipulate the other person because that's very much what you're trying to do when really you have to start looking inside yourself and what you're actually experiencing and begin to touch those wounds. Absolutely. I mean, I think 
it's a wonderful opportunity to look at your partner as one of your greatest teachers, that they're bringing up things inside of you that already exist. And of course, there's different relationships where if there's actual abuse in the relationship uh, and there is, you know, physical violence or verbal violence and things like that, it's a little bit different. But when it comes to, you know, interpersonal effectiveness and attachment in terms of relational trauma and attachment, that really comes up the most in romantic relationships. And so what happens, I think, a lot with people is that they either think they're not a good match with that person, or they end up in this anxious avoidant dance. And a lot of people, you know, why would these two attachment styles be drawn to each other? And the reason that they're drawn to each other is that they have the same wounding. They're both insecure attachment styles, which means they both have the same, so that anxious attachment is afraid of abandonment consciously, but subconsciously they're afraid of intimacy. Then the, the inverse is, is that the avoidant attachment style is afraid consciously of intimacy but subconsciously they're afraid of abandonment. So it's inverse. And then that's why they're drawn to each other. And so you have this sort of anxious attachments tend to be a little bit more nurturing and warm and expressive and really kind of open with their feelings. And the avoidant is drawn to that oftentimes thinking, I want some of that sort of a nurturing caretaker. And so yeah, they, they admire that in the other person because it's a skill that they lack physically, mentally, or emotionally. And it feels like they are witnessing somebody who's in touch with their feelings and who can yes. express their feelings. And avoidance are often disconnected from their own emotions and unable to identify what they're feeling or they run away from anything too overwhelming. And so they're drawn to that. And then the anxious is drawn to the avoidant because they appear stoic and they appear sort of calm and even keeled and it appears to them as emotional self-regulation and that's very attractive they're like i want some of that and so it becomes the very thing that draws them to each other ends up creating this sort of rift in the relationship where it becomes a push-pull dynamic but it's definitely a little more nuanced than that you know it's depending on who you pair with so it's good to know your attachment style and what area you tend to lean towards. But there's, for instance, if two anxious attachments end up together, the one of the anxious attachments can be more anxious in the relationship and the anxious attachment can, in the context of that relationship, become an avoidant. Right. And so it really depends on who you pair with. And then if you have two avoidant attachment styles and, you know, the thing with attachment styles is just really understanding, oh, this is where it came from. This is how I attach to my primary caregivers. This makes a lot of sense why I would show up like this in romantic relationships. Now I understand that it existed inside of me and my, my partner is just a mirror to help me see see the unhealed parts of me. Instead of projecting what I want them to do to meet my needs, the goal of the anxious attachment would be, how do I self-soothe? How do I learn more emotional self-regulation? 
how do I change my relationship with myself so that I could understand that I don't need to be rescued or I don't need to be so hyper vigilant about what my partner is doing. And oftentimes anxious attachment is called anxious preoccupied because they become preoccupied with their partner where they're thinking about them all the time. They're wondering when they're going to text. If they text, did their tone change? Did they, uh, did they wait too long to text? Are they mad at them? And all these sort of feelings that they're trying to get from their partner is really this internal world that they're not able to hold and understand. And it's the relationship with self. And the more you build that relationship with self and understand, okay, I might be missing some self-esteem or I may be placing my value in this relationship. That's my work to do. It's not my partner's job, even though I can heal in this relationship with support and intimacy. They're not here to fix me and they're not causing it. They're just activating something that already exists inside of me. And that's just a really hard place to get to when you're in it and you're experiencing it. Oh my God, it is so it is so hard. I mean, I've, I've been through it. I'm sure a lot of people have been through it. It feels excruciatingly painful it feels you know it's akin to feeling like you're you can't breathe and it feels like the only thing is to get back in connection with your partner that would soothe you and so the very thing that causes you anxiety is the very thing that gives you comfort and so it becomes very confusing and the way that i describe it is is that we have this wounded part inside of us because we're not relating to ourselves and we haven't done enough of the healing work yet, which is okay, because everybody, we're all wounded and magnificent at the same time, and we're all imperfectly perfect. And it's just, yeah, it just highlights that, okay, it's hitting something inside of me, which is just redirection to focus more on my internal world and to understand what are my core beliefs? How do I feel about myself? And am I relying exclusively on that relationship to give me a sense of self-worth? So the anxious attacher from what I've experienced is they tend to almost shut down a part of themselves and begin to cast blame on the avoidant for not meeting their needs or you know whatever it is that they're desiring in that relationship. If this person could only fix what they have going on with themselves, and it's almost like they have blinders on and they can't see their actual role in this dynamic. And it's like, if you could just cultivate enough self-awareness to see your role in this dynamic and how it's pushing the other person away, it's the biggest aha moment that an anxious attacher could possibly have. So how can we cultivate some of that self-awareness to get to that point? So that's, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard when you're in it. It's really hard when you're in it. And it's, if, if you find that it's a pattern and you find that you're noticing that it's coming up, just sitting with the emotion and sitting with the discomfort and what anxiously attached people tend to do is not only blame their partner if they would only do this, but they, after a while of not getting whatever need that they need to get met, they start to engage in protest behaviors. And what that looks like is, you know, an anxious attachment can have an avoidant protector. So essentially, I'm anxious and I'm in a relationship with my partner and he's not meeting my needs or he is not 
responding to me in the way in which I would like him to respond to me and the time in which I would like it. Just taking a step back and being like, am I actually connecting and relating with this person and thinking about the other person? Or is this just about me and what I need to feel to soothe my nervous system, to soothe my anxious attachment system? So it's about pausing and knowing it's okay that I'm feeling this, but sitting with it. And the more you start to sit with that and say, where is this coming from? I call it compassionate inquiry, compassionate inquiry and and, and then if you could just pause a little bit and understand that this person is putting a blanket over your wounded part and it feels warm and fuzzy and cozy and your wounded part is temporarily medicated and the minute they don't do what you want or they pull away or the anxious attachment senses any kind of distance, then their nervous system is completely activated and then the amygdala, as we know, which is in the midbrain, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And we go into, you know, anger and resentment typically comes up. And a lot of times those protest behaviors are they try to make their partner jealous or they're like, oh, you didn't text me back for two hours. I'm not going to text you back for eight hours. And so these these like subconscious manipulative tactics to try to get back in connection with their partner instead of asking for intimacy and support. And that's where Imago comes in, where you, it's a dialogue, it's a dialogical process where you're able to say, Hey, I have something that I'd like to talk to you about. Would you be willing to discuss this? And then they might not have the bandwidth at that moment. They may be tired from work, has nothing to do with you. And they say, you know, not right now, but in about two hours, I'm willing to do that or tomorrow. And you being okay with that, because you're going to start working on your own internal boundaries, which is called containment, right? How do I contain self-soothe and learn that I, I asked for what I needed, but I wasn't manipulative about it. I was able to say, would you be willing to talk about a topic that's really important to me? And would you be willing to do that? And if, and being okay with if they say not right now, because they don't have the bandwidth. So I want to backtrack for a second sure. on, on the anxious attacher. And this is going to be probably the biggest aha moment that I think anybody has in a podcast on attachment, because it's not something that we often talk about, but you mentioned it. And I'm very glad that you did is that the anxious attacher is also avoidant, but what they're avoiding is that fear of abandonment and that mm -hmm. fear of rejection. And that can make you act very out of character for who you know yourself to be because you're trying to get all these different needs met from this person, this extension of you, this thing that's outside of you. Mm -hmm. And you're not meeting those things for yourself. Absolutely. And it, and that's why I said it's so nuanced, right? So to think, well, if you're an anxiously attached person and you identify with that, how could you have an avoidant protector? And it's like, it very much comes out because it becomes the anxious attacher starts to feel very frustrated and angry and, and resentful for not getting what they want. And then their subconscious takes over and I call them either adaptations that they have utilized in the past to, to survive and to stay in connection with people. And maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Uh, it's all they know. And so they start to subconsciously act in ways that they're not proud of, which could then bring on shame. And it's not about shaming anybody. It's just about recognizing it and taking the time to be compassionate with yourself and understand, 
oh, I'm engaging in a protest behavior right now because I'm not getting what I need. And I think saying out loud, you know, I had a therapist once say to me, so you're looking for validation in men. And I was like, what? No. And I'm like, so I'm looking for someone to self-soothe me, to make me feel if they do exactly what I want when they when I want it, then I will be okay. I'm not considering what they may need. I'm not considering how they relate. I'm not considering their space or their time. All I'm concerned about is I'm anxious. You have not gotten in touch with me in the amount of time that I feel is appropriate. I am feeling that you're distant, you're pulling away, you might leave me. And so therefore I engage in these behaviors because I start to, that avoid and protector comes up and I may not answer the phone call when he calls, he or she, depending on if you know, you're in a relationship with another woman or a man is in a relationship with another man, your partner, and then you start to not answer the phone or you uh, try to make them jealous or you become unavailable and it's a protective mechanism that subconsciously just comes up and it's this sort of subconscious desire like I'm going to leave you before you leave me or I'm going to, you'll see, watch what I'm going to do. So it's, it's an attempt at sort of trying to punish the partner because it's like you caused me pain, you didn't soothe me and so now I'm going to do it back to you. And so it becomes this sort of you know, insecure, co-addicted relationship where it goes back and forth. And so what oftentimes happens is that most of the time when an anxious attachment engages in a protest behavior and they pull back, at that point, the avoidant subconscious fear of abandonment kicks in. And they often start to try to come closer and reestablish connection because that threat of intimacy is not there that threat of engulfment that is often very common, that threat of autonomy and feeling smothered is not there because the other partner pulled away. And so it's important to notate that one of the skills to cultivate, and it's so hard when you're in it, and it really, really is, is just pausing and having some compassion for yourself and understanding that it's a really uncomfortable feeling and it makes so much sense. And if I could just get curious with what's going on inside of me and connect with that part of me and I can try to self-soothe, you can reach, you can call a friend. I always suggest that people reach out to other people to co-regulate. Is there a friend in your life that you feel calms you down? Is there somebody that you could talk to and sort of building that support system around you of people that co-regulate you, which means their nervous system relaxes your nervous system. Or you reach out to them to feel, and I call that earned security. And you can get that earned security only when you start to pause and look inward, only when you have compassionate self-inquiry. And then that could be with a therapist. You could build a relationship with a therapist that you feel that you could create a secure attachment with, and you can earn your security. Yeah, but if we co-regulate, now the relationship feels boring. Right. 
Right. And so we mistake that attachment system getting activated with, oh, my God, I'm in love with this person. I'm going to die if they don't get back to me. Right. And so it becomes boring. But what happens is, is that we usually go for partners that have both similar and dissimilar qualities of our primary caregivers in an attempt to subconsciously heal some wounds. And that's what we are attracted to because it's familiar. And so somebody who might be more calm or boring, or my, I just co-regulated and now my attachment system is calm and we equate anxiety with love and desire. And that's not necessarily the case. And so you're not expected to do that or feel that right away. But if you allow yourself some time and space to have some compassionate self-inquiry and to say, what am I feeling right now? This might've existed. I know this is so uncomfortable, but I'm going to sit with it and I'm going to see what that feels like. And I'm going to really work on calming my nervous system down. And if I calm my nervous system down and my partner feels boring to me, then it's my work to work with a therapist to understand why. When my attachment system doesn't get activated, do I find a partner boring? I think it is when we feel that calm, peace, bliss, and joy, we're just not used to it. And it's such an abnormal feeling that it has to be wrong. Right. So it feels very unfamiliar to the nervous system because the nervous system is so used to having this implicit sense of feeling anxious. And that is comforting in a weird sort of way, which is that it's familiar. So anything that's familiar. So to feel calm, oftentimes people are like, this uh, This actually feels scarier because I'm not used to having this felt implicit sense of safety within and I'm starting to cultivate it, which is equating to boredom. And therefore, it's actually making me maybe more anxious, even though I might be bored because it's not familiar to my nervous system yet. Well, it can also touch into your worthiness wounding. So let's say you have a job and it's the most secure job that you've ever had in your life and things are going really well. You've got benefits and health insurance and you've got a solid paycheck and all these things are coming in and you have that sense of of well-being. And once again, because there is nothing to be interjected in there that's going to give you that anxiety and to let you know that you know this is where you belong, you start to feel like, I, I don't really deserve this. I don't belong here. And then you unintentionally, right? We, we self-sabotage that experience because we just don't feel like, like we deserve it. It feels, it feels too good to be true to the nervous yeah. system because the nervous system is used to chaos and things going wrong. And when's that know, other shoe going to drop? Ah, Exactly. When's the yeah. other shoe going to drop? So that's neuroception, right? It's being completely aware. So there's interoception, which is I can start to become aware of what's going on inside of me. But neuroception is this sort of hypervigilance to threat and threat of losing my job, losing my friendship, losing, you know, and I'm hyper an anxious attachment tends to be hyper fixated or anyone who gets into a neuroceptive state tends to be fixated on what could go wrong. When is the other shoe going to drop? This feels insecure to me. I'm worried about this and I'm going to notice all of the things that could go wrong even if there's so many positive things that are glaring at my face due to negativity bias and negativity bias, it wants to continue to confirm my story. It wants to continue to feed this idea that it's the other shoe is going to drop. It always does. I am going to end up losing this job or I'm going to lose this, this friendship or I'm going to lose this relationship. And so I'm hypervigilant 
my neuroception, my antennas are out to look out for threat. And I'm looking for any kind of threat and negativity bias is pushing me towards that because it has to support the narrative that I have going on inside of me, despite evidence to the contrary, because I won't see that because my amygdala is hijacked if I'm in an anxious state. Yeah, your reticular activating system is looking for all the things that are going on in your environment to continue to feed you all the evidence that you know to be true for yourself. And so how can we overcome that portion of the evidence that we're looking for and start to move into a place of finding all the, the positive things that are happening in our experience? So that, that is what I love, whether you want to work with somebody that you trust, like a friend, and start to talk about it. I recommend a therapist or a coach to really start to work, to cultivate, to understand your inner world in terms of how you relate to yourself and to understand what are my core beliefs, what is my wounding, because we all have it. We all have it. And what is my story? What's the story that I tell myself about myself? Do I say that I'm not good enough? Do I say that I need somebody else in order to feel good enough? That I will only be worthy if somebody wants to partner with me. I will only be worthy if I have a good pie paying job. I will only be worthy if I get chosen. I will only, so there's no internal self-validation and that needs to be taught, especially if, if it was never modeled for you especially if it was never taught to you, especially if somebody never heard, held your internal world and, and helped you to make sense of you and your feelings and was there for you when you were growing up and developing and shaping your identity and shaping your inner biology. So your inner biology and that template and that paradigm gets set at a young age. And so working with somebody to really get down to the root of it, it's hard work, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. Yeah, it's worth it because you are worth it. You just have to believe that you are. You are so worth it. And the wonderful thing about it is, is that there's hope on the other side because you are working towards self-improvement. And even if it doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to, you know that you're walking in the path of healing. And you know that you are working on yourself and you are learning how to take care of yourself. You are learning how to cultivate a relationship with yourself and become more intimate with yourself, understanding all the parts, the wounded part of you, the little, you know, Jessica calls it the little me in her book, inner child. Everybody has it. You can call it whatever you want, but it's in there and it has been hurt. And there is pain stories there that have created what I, you know, I call magical thinking. And the idea of that is that when we're young, we have this thinking that is very egocentric and we think everything is about us. And so if, you know, we fall on the sidewalk, we think that the sidewalk is mad at us. Or if mom and dad start fighting, we think we must be bad or we must have, if we were good, if I was a good girl, if you were a good boy, they wouldn't be fighting. If mom and dad get divorced, if there's abuse, if there isn't connection and attunement, we start to think that it means something about us. And that is developmental shame. And that's not ours. That's just a story. And being with a safe person to unpack that with slowly, it's a slow unfolding, is one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself. It's really hard, but it's really worth it. 
Absolutely is. And what that brings up for me is that the inner child actually has the power to stop and block you from receiving what's actually meant for you because it, it wants to protect you so badly and to keep you safe that you actually kind of shut yourself off to, you know, having these other experiences that, that are meant for you. And it's a shame when that happens because so many good things have come your way. And if you think back on it, how many no's have you given when you actually wanted to say yes? Absolutely. I mean, the inner child and the little me inside of you has been hurt and wounded and it shows up today and it throws temper tantrums and it gets scared and it's fearful and it wants to be safe. It's looking for safety. And it's about acknowledging everything that that little boy or little girl has been through and really having compassion and holding space for that part of you with somebody that you feel safe with. And that takes time. If you end up working with a therapist, if you find a, a, you know, a good fit where you create and cultivate this sense of safety, where you can start to have someone hold your inner world and hold that little boy and girl and just be with it. Now we talked about anxious attachment a lot so far. If we don't touch on the avoidant, I know a lot of people are going to be super disappointed. So For tell sure. us, Tell us a little bit about the avoidant, how they come to be, and what the origin story is for that insecure attachment style. So the avoidant, I feel sometimes, I actually don't feel like there's enough literature out there for the avoidant. I feel like there are in some in some areas they can be looked at as demon. I can tell you from my comment section that that rings very true because people are always looking for more information on avoidance. And a lot of the stuff that I produce and that I put out, I have a lot of people commenting, hey, I'm avoidant, but I don't know where to start, where to go, what to do, what's a book that I can read. And all the books have a small section on the avoidant, but yes. there's not a lot of, well, now how can I recover from this? Absolutely. And, and I think that there's a couple of books that I'll recommend in a little bit, but I think that an insecure attachment style, it's also an insecure attachment style. It just manifests differently and it looks like they don't care. And it seems like, you know, they're, they, you know, the anxious attachments engage in what's called protest behaviors and the avoidance attack, you know, in what's called, they engage in what's called deactivating strategies. And so what happens is that either it's one of the two, either they were enmeshed with the primary caregiver when they were younger and there was no space where they had to be the adult and a parent depended on them. Say, for instance, the mother's husband left and then the child, the mother became so dependent on the male son, let's just say, and he had to take care of her and he felt engulfed and he felt smothered and he wasn't able to be a child. And he equates intimacy and closeness and connection with engulfment. Or it could be, because they always say it's the anxious, but the avoidant also experiences abandonment. Isolation. And isolation, abandonment, yeah. lack of connection and attunement, inconsistent lack of connection, meaning mom is there sometimes and then she's not. Dad is there sometimes and then he's not. Or and so that can look like if you're a child being left alone to play by yourself. So you find yourself kind of in your head playing with your toys and there's not a lot of direct interaction. So some of these things on the on the outside looking in look very benign, right? But how the child actually receives that makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And, and in that moment, that child feels abandoned, neglected, 
feels like nobody is holding space for what they're going through. No one is asking them how they feel. No one is there for them. And they sort of feel like, you know what? No one's going to take care of me. I'm going to have to do it myself. So they learn to rely on themselves and become independent and autonomous and they have more agency. Like, well, if no one, no one's going to take care of me, so I have to take care of myself. And so they develop this sort of hyper independence where it, you know, the goal is interdependence in a relationship. And I could talk about that, but they end up developing this hyper independence where they become super proficient at being on their own and super proficient at they're used to being on their own. And the way that they've learned to soothe themselves has been alone. So it makes sense that when they get activated in the context of a romantic relationship, that they would pull away in order to soothe their nervous system because that's they were left alone a lot. They were neglected or abandoned. And if they were enmeshed, they were still neglected and abandoned because the enmeshment didn't create any room for them to be a child. And it didn't create any room for their emotions and their world to be held. It was all about the, the caregiver and their world and what they experienced and what they needed. And so they go through a lot avoidant attachments. They feel just as activated and just as anxious. Their behaviors seem uncaring. Their behaviors are that of withdrawal, but they're really pulling away to calm their attachment system down, where an anxious attachment needs to reconnect and needs connection to soothe their attachment system. But the avoidance have learned that if they need to do it on their own, they need to take the space and they need to pull away in order to relax their nervous system because they're also anxious, but they're very, very good at acting like they're not. They're very, very good at disconnecting and compartmentalizing and acting like it doesn't bother them, but there's a lot going on internally. It's difficult to understand because it feels like really hurtful behavior. It feels like, you know, they're pulling away. It feels like they're not giving the love that the anxious attachment wants or even a secure attachment. Because if a secure attachment pairs with an avoidant attachment, the secure attachment can become anxious. If the avoidant pulls away enough and utilizes the deactivating strategies. And what the deactivating strategies that the avoidant uses is to keep distance between them and their partner, to keep them at an arm's length, and to make sure that they don't get too emotionally intimate because that will activate their nervous system and they will start to feel engulfed and they will start to feel smothered. Not because of their partner, because of what exists inside of them already, because of their own template, their own paradigm of what they experienced when they were younger. And so they need to pull away in order to relax their nervous system. And it seems like it's uncaring and it's unkind. And I think the way that an avoidant also can work with a therapist to start to become more aware of what's going on in their internal world and more aware of connecting with their feelings instead of disconnecting or disassociating or running, right? Running away, catching a flight, you know, uh, getting away from the situation where they can learn how to cultivate containment as well. Taking vacations alone. Right, right. <laughs> running, you know, catching flights, not feelings. You yeah. know, that's definitely, an, you know, an avoidant, you know, for a poster child for an avoidant. And it's just, what are they running away from? is their internal discomfort and the emotions that are being activated, they're also activated and anxious. They just show it differently. And it seems like it, people get demonized for being avoidant. They're still on, and have fear of abandonment subconsciously. 
and they still and they have a fear of intimacy. But the irony is that the anxious attachments have a subconscious fear of intimacy. So it seems like they're pushing and pushing for connection, but they're pushing for enmeshment, not necessarily full connection, because healthy connection is interdependency. And so I think that's the difference in having a little more compassion for that attachment style and understanding that they're in a lot of pain too. It just shows up differently. And then just real quickly, what does interdependence actually look like? So I, I would say it's like a three things. I would say they're society is all about being independent and they glamorize it. Independence is the key and be as independent as you can. And people take it to a whole nother level, especially people who tend to lean towards the avoidant attachment style. They become hyper independent and that puts up walls when you become hyper independent. And so the walls create distance and that's exactly what they want. And so interdependence means that there's a healthy amount of intimacy and support within the relationship where I can depend on you and you can depend on me. I'm comfortable with doing my own thing and having my own friends and my own hobbies and you also doing that. So I'm okay with spending time with you and connecting with you, but I'm also okay if we do things separately so that we're not enmeshed, but there is enough time for each of us to be have our own sense of relating to ourselves with our own identity and our own friends and hobbies. And then when we come together, we become interdependent with one another, which means you can still depend on your partner. It's not about this hyper-independence, like you take care of you and I'll take care of me. That's not realistic. The point of being in relationship and we're wired for connection is to be in healthy interdependency, which is, which is having intimacy and support. And it's about communicating and it's about being okay with somebody's boundaries and not taking it personal, understanding that. At the end of the day, it's a, allowing your partner to go out and to continue to be themselves, to live their life, to do their thing, to be the, the whole person that they already are because we don't complete each other. We're not the other half of somebody. We are two whole people that are coming together in relationship with one another, but then recognizing that I can leave and we can come back and I know that you have my back, I have your back, and we didn't do anything nefarious to ruin the relationship for the 12 hours that we were apart for the day and that we can come back at the end of the day and connect and co-regulate and create that intimacy with one another. Absolutely. Now, now with the avoidant, people are always looking for different tools to heal an avoidant attachment style. But we know that that starts with co-regulating with others. So how can the avoidant initiate co-regulation when it's something that just completely activates their nervous system? Yeah. So it's about seeing, first of all, scanning to see if in their support group, they have anybody that they feel comfortable enough with and see if it's a friend, a family member, I would start there to see if they have enough, you know, and sort of start practicing with leaning in on them and starting to open up little by little to sort of be able to depend on them and sort of cultivating these relationships little by little. If they don't, because some avoidance tend to be, have less friends and less, you know, a little bit of a smaller world, not all, but some, you know, seeking out a therapist is so beneficial. And I know it's so, so hard. I like the book, The Way of the Spiritual Warrior or the 
the way of the superior man. Way of the superior man. Yeah. The way of the superior man and the journey from self abandonment to healing, which everybody, you know, the avoidant and the anxious both self abandon. They just looks different. So it can be applicable to that if they want to start in terms of like reading and getting in, into into that kind of work and becoming but also scanning their environment to see if there are supportive people that they already feel safe with that they could start to co-regulate with that feels less threatening than a romantic partner. Now, very unintentionally, and I want to direct this back to eternal wellness counseling. What are some of the maladaptive coping mechanisms that might be introduced into somebody's life because of an insecure attachment style? A lot. Um, you know, codependency comes up a lot and people pleasing, you know, uh, Avoidance can people please also people please just to avoid the situation, but not really telling you what's going on internally in their world and people pleasing in a way where they are like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, they're not really discussing what's going on. A lot of the maladaptive strategies that I see in individuals and in couples when they're in pain, regardless of what, you know, particularly around relationships and any other issues, whether it's a job. I find people use maladaptive strategies and coping mechanisms to get relief because they are in pain and they're in discomfort. Some turn to drugs. Some turn to alcohol. Alcohol is also a drug. Some turn to TikTok. Some turn to TikTok. Yeah. Uh, digital digital addiction. Uh, you know, seeking knowledge and just really kind of becoming ravenous and having this insatiable appetite to okay. like. Now, now you're making it personal. <laughs> This insatiable appetite to sort of learn what is going on with me. But definitely, I, you know, being addicted to a person, you know, not all attach anxious attachments are love addicts, but there are people who are love addicts that are the, use the person as a drug. And so they actually experience major withdrawal when they're apart from them and they're literally using that person to soothe them. So that's a maladaptive strategy, using any kind of drugs to quell what's going on inside of them. I would say that's another maladaptive strategy. Again, a brilliant adaptation, I call it, even though it doesn't feel like it's a positive and it's not serving you any longer. At the end of the day, all you're really trying to do is take care of yourself because you feel anxiety, depression, discomfort, abandonment, trauma. It's so painful. And so often we don't have the tools to, na to navigate that. And so it makes sense that somebody would pick up a drink or pick up a pill or get in another relationship right away, right? Right, you know, and that happens. I see that really, really typically very, very common. Just replace it with another person. And then people pleasing. And that is a big one. And, you know, codependency is very broad. People think codependency is I need you and uh, if you're okay, I'm okay, or I'm dependent on another person. That's not really what codependency is. Codependency is your relationship with yourself. You could actually be codependent and not depend on anybody, but you worry about what other people think about you. You self-abandon and you self-betray and you people please, which means you do things that you don't really want to do. And procrastinate. And procrastinate. And you do things that you don't really want to do in order not to lose connection, whether that's a friend. It might not even be a romantic relationship. I know a lot of codependents that are not love addicts. They just have codependent tendencies. And it's not all bad. It's codependency makes you loving and nurturing and empathetic. 
but it's the areas in which you self-abandon and you deny parts of yourself in order to please somebody else. Because what happens is, is you store that. You store those emotions, you store those feelings, and they're going to come out. They're going to come out in another maladaptive way. and At the worst time possible. At the worst inopportune times where you least expect it. And you're like, where did that come from? And it's because I say you're eating your, you're eating your feelings, something they can control, right? They feel so out of control in their world and their inner world feels so unmanageable that they feel control is what I put in my body and what I don't put in my body. Or people end up starting to gamble which gives them a dopamine hit and, and basically is creating an illusionary cloak over the pain and is essentially numbing and self-medicating what they're feeling. And then sex addiction, that's another common one, to try to get validation from somebody else. It's definitely behaviorally too. It's not necessarily just in addictions. It's in people pleasing. It's in doing things you don't want to do, not having boundaries, not saying no when you want to say no. Uh, saying yes when you don't want to say yes and just sort of giving up parts of yourself in order to fit in or to please somebody or to stay in connection. What does it mean to be sober curious? So that's a really, really good question. I would say in the last couple of years, alcohol's reputation is crumbling. And what I'm finding is that more and more people are choosing to, you know, dry January uh, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm hearing from a lot of friends, like, I got to stop. This is taking a toll on my body. I can't get up. And more and more people are coming out as sober that we didn't even know that don't even promote it. You know, Jason Bateman is sober. I didn't even know he was sober, like at all. Will Arnett, John Mayer is sober, Bradley Cooper. And so all of Drew Barrymore recently talked about how she has stopped drinking and I can go on and on. And, that, and that's what I found a lot of my friends or, you know, clients that have come to me are interested in getting more in touch with themselves and doing some inner work. And that's on a variety of issues. And they're finding that they don't want to have hangovers anymore. They want a healthier lifestyle. It doesn't really fit in with their lifestyle any longer. And what happens is, is that, you know, more and more studies are coming out showing that alcohol particularly is, is a toxin to the body. And so it's a depressant. And anything that depresses your central nervous system and plays with your chemicals and your neurotransmitters, like your dopamine and your serotonin and your GABA, particularly your GABA levels, which is the calming neurotransmitter, is going to the next day be depleted and you're going to feel more anxious and more depressed and end up eating, you're going to end up craving, you know, unhealthy food. And if you're trying to be healthier and you're trying to implement a healthier lifestyle, it starts to sabotage some of the goals that you want and you, you can't be clear. You feel foggy. The hangovers last longer as you get older. The body doesn't recuperate in the same way. It certainly feels that way. But for so many of us, we get into this place where you may have a job or a certain role that you perform that's you know high stress, high demand, uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And you'll find yourself after a hard day or a hard experience where you're saying, I need a drink. Or I need I need something, and that's the the go to habit. Yeah, I mean that is the most socialized, normalized drug because alcohol is a drug uh, in society. I mean everywhere we go, it's it, it it's glamorized in movies, and and it's normal. Let's meet for a drink. Let's go to happy hour. Let's go out and grab some drinks. Take the you know, and it's 
I think the paradigm is shifting where people are more into holistic modalities and more into wellness. That's why I named actually my company Eternal Wellness because I gear I started going towards that avenue. I started getting involved in like hyperbaric chambers and red light therapy and I was in cold plunge. I started, I've been doing cold plunge now for a while, you know, hot yoga. And I just felt like it goes against everything that I stand for. I don't want to feel hungover. I don't want any, any more anxiety. I want, and it's really hard to work internally on yourself in terms of understanding why you're feeling what you're feeling and really connecting to yourself when you are, you know, under the influence of something that it takes time to recover that alters your brain chemistry. And so I think the sober curious movement is just a shift towards a lot of people choosing to change their lifestyles. It's not necessarily that they go to AA or NA, they just choose, you know, this is not serving me any longer in my life. And I don't find that it fits in. And I feel like I'm healthier. I feel clearer. I feel much better. I actually have more clarity. I feel that I I'm able to work on myself a little bit more and really figure out who I am and what my wounding is through more clarity. And it's difficult to have clarity when you are constantly putting something in your body that's altering your brain chemistry and your perception. And so I think that's the sober curious movement. I think it's, it's, you know, Hollywood, it's taken Hollywood by storm. It's like becoming a norm now. I can say for myself, it also, you know, staying away from it has been one of those things where the rumination and the anxious overthinking that would keep you up at night, it just doesn't exist anymore. Now, it's not just that one thing, right? It's the the combination of all the things that we're doing. You're working out, you're taking care of yourself, you're eating well, you're going to the gym, you're doing cold plunging, breath work, you know, using all these different modalities. Maybe you're going to therapy on top of that. But mm -hmm. there's a point, there's a point where you feel pretty well regulated the majority of the time. And so that anxious overthinking that used to happen all the time, or you're ruminating on, you know, a situation that happened and you're, you're mad that you didn't say this one thing and maybe I should have said it better, or, you know, maybe I, you embarrass yourself over something and, you know, that tends to play this massive role. It just doesn't anymore. It doesn't exist. Like I can't, I can't get there anymore. Because your chemicals are so much more balanced when it's you're like, not putting, yes. <laughs> when you don't put alcohol and drugs into your system, your body is so resilient. Your body is knows how to heal itself. And so if you're synthetically altering your brain chemistry, you're essentially putting in synthetic dopamine, synthetic GABA, synthetic, and your body stops producing it for a little while because it actually thinks it has too much. And so it takes a little bit of time for it to catch up and be like, oh, we don't have enough dopamine. And your body starts to, because your body has this amazing innate ability to heal itself. I mean, you witness it when you get a scratch on your arm and, you know, if you take good care of it and maybe it'll leave a little scar, but if you take care of it really well and internally, it's the same thing. If you take out any kind of drug that you are using to take the edge off to sort of comfort that internal unrest or self-medicate that anxiety or depression that you're feeling or uncomfortability. If you take it out for long enough, your own body is more powerful. Your own body has chemicals inside of it that are what I call hope molecules. And these hope molecules, you know, from working out, you get more endorphins. Endorphins are painkillers. They're more potent painkillers than any synthetic substance you can put in your body. And so they work better. And if you continue to live that lifestyle and you get a real taste of it, you don't want to go back. 
And so people are taking some time off from these things and finding their life is getting better. They're becoming more productive. They feel clearer. They're having less anxiety. And it makes sense that you would have less anxiety because any depressant is going to give you anxiety when it wears off. Here's a really good question. Is social drinking okay or do I have a problem and when do we know? Ah, it's a really good question. So the irony in that, and a lot of people don't get it, they're like, well, this person drinks every night and they have one drink a night. Now, it's, it's about how you drink when you drink. And it's about can you just have one drink? Or is it sheer willpower to have that one drink? So it's the idea that the phenomenon of craving begins for people who have an addictive nature, who have a tendency to have an addictive personality. And then that addictive personality sort of manifests into a particular area, which is whatever it is that gives them the most pleasure and whatever gives them the most relief. And so that becomes their drug of choice, whatever it may be. Pick your poison. And so this idea, it's how you drink when you drink. And can you put it down? Can you have one drink and put it down all the time, consistently? And does the phenomenon of craving occur for you? Meaning, once you have one drink, you can't stop. You're going to drink one bottle, two bottles. But there's some people that can have a drink a night and it never escalates further than that. And there is no phenomenon of craving. So the idea is you have an addictive personality. Do you get a mental obsession and a physical obsession with, with the next time you want to use that, whatever it is that you did? That's the difference. The, the best example I would give, would, I would say, is imagine two people getting in a car accident and they go to the hospital and they both have severe injuries and they're given, you know, the protocol in order to heal them effectively. Then they have to get detoxed off of that medication because whether you're an addict or not, whether you have an addictive personality or not, you're, that's addictive. They're addictive substances. So you detox off of that. Both of them get discharged. One can't stop thinking about the morphine and the Demerol and the painkiller. And they just want more and more of it. It's a mental obsession. The other one is like not even thinking about it. There's like, thank God I healed. And that was what I needed to have while I was in there to, for the pain and for the injury that was appropriate. And so that addictive mindset, that addictive personality it's about knowing yourself. It's about knowing how you drink when you drink. If you can have a couple of drinks and you don't have ne any negative consequences and you're, a it, you're able to not really feel anxious, it doesn't really interrupt your life, you don't really have any negative consequences, it's not frequent, it, then you know that's for you to decide. There's a lot of tests online. I do screening tools with my clients to sort of kind of go over that. And decide how they feel it's is it having negative consequences how do you drink when you drink what are your patterns does the phenomenon of craving begin when you begin you know the manifestation of the allergy or can you put it down can you take it or leave it because there's people at certain times in their life when they're going through something they can drink excessively or use drugs but then they can just put it down they were just literally using it to self-medicate during a particular time and when their pain it was situational and when their pain lessened, they were able to just put it down. So that's what separates someone. The other, a person with the addictive personality would not be able to put it down. It starts to become progressive and it becomes worse and worse. And the hangovers become worse. And it's, it's a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy. Yeah, there's a difference. And it's hard because you can be a problem drinker and a problem user for a period of time and still not be an alcoholic. It's so interesting to think yeah. about it that way. Yep. It's about if you could take it or leave it, that inability, when you are powerless over, you have no choice any longer. You can't not use that substance or that drug of choice because you have a mental obsession with it. 
that's when it's a problem. It's so interesting because a lot of times what we'll say is, well, I can quit any time. But can you? Have you tried? And have you been successful? So a lot of people can stop, but a lot of people can't stay stopped. So a lot of people will stop to make a point to themselves to prove that they can stop and then only to pick up again. So why are you starting again? Because they end up putting an arbitrary date on, I'll do this for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months, right? But they know that at the end of that six months, they can go right back to it. Right. So that, that is, that's a warning sign. And that doesn't take care of the craving mechanism that's still inside of you. You're still experiencing that. And during that time period, you may find yourself doing other things to compensate. And that's what often happens is people cross addict. They start smoking pot or they say, oh, pot's not a big deal. It's legal, you know, or they start, you know, gambling or they start having more sex and they're more promiscuous, whatever it is. Because if they have that addictive nature, it's going to manifest in in some area. It's it's like that whack-a-mole game. You whack one thing down, another thing is going to pop up. You whack one thing down and it that's just how it works. And It's just about knowing, do I have an addictive personality? Because you know yourself and getting to know yourself. And does it serve me? Is it serving my life? Is it enhancing the quality of my life? Is it helping me improve and become a better version of myself? Is it adding to my life? Or is it taking away from my life and I'm having negative consequences and I'm rationalizing and basically just giving it a time frame that I'm going to stop so I could prove to myself that I could do it. Look, I'm not an alcoholic. And then I pick back up again. And that is such an individualized thing that you have to really know yourself and really understand your patterns and work with somebody and, you know, take a screening tool and, and understand if you are that, if you are, do have an addictive personality because it's in your best interest to know if it serves you or not. Wow. You gave us so much value today. I know this podcast today is going to change so many people's lives and give them so much information that might be the missing piece that they've been looking for. So Essen, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell the audience where they can reach you and how they can work with you directly? And uh, don't forget to check out her blog as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. It was so wonderful. I really enjoyed our conversation. You can um, catch me. I just started my social media. So I'm Essen Pinarly LCSW on Instagram. I have a website. It's called eternalwellnesscounseling.com. I also work at Relationship Institute of Palm Beach, which is relationshipssb.com and beselfful.com. And so you could catch me on any of those websites. And I have a lot of blog. I just started writing a lot of blogs about these topics. So please feel free to read them. And I will be producing some more content on social media and just giving some more, hopefully, good information that people can find useful that they could put in their toolkit. And if it ignites something inside of somebody where they feel like, oh, I could relate to that or I could, you know, I might benefit from therapy. I just, I think everybody in the world should be in therapy. That's just me. I, I mean, I'm in therapy. I, I just think it's about self-improvement. I think it's about self-development. I think it's about becoming the best version of you. And I think it's really nice to have a third party that's an objective, safe person. And it's, it's all about the right fit. Because not everybody, you're not going to feel comfortable with everybody. So I encourage people, if they go out and look for a therapist, please don't give up after the first time. Have some consultations with people and have discovery calls with them and see if you feel comfortable working with them.
Yeah, absolutely. Think of it more as an interview and make sure you interview them and absolutely. see if it's a good fit. And that's the most important thing is the client therapist fit because that's when you get the most work done. But like I said, you know, I'm on those websites. You could look me up. I'm also on Psychology Today, SM Pinarly. Thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate sure. this conversation. And for those of you who want to see more of Essen, she's going to be taking part in the 21-day self-love challenge that starts on July 9th. You can go to the link in my stand store to sign up for that. You're not going to want to miss it. And she's going to be able to answer some of your questions that you've been wanting answered for a while. 